Hey, Whiskey Ringers, welcome to a brand new intro. First off, there are still a few bottles of our barrel single barrel rye finished in Armagnac casks, picked in partnership with This Is My Bourbon podcast. Check out the show notes for links to purchase. Second, I am thrilled to announce that I've joined the Bar Cart Co-op. This group of podcasts and shows has a show or multiple for everyone. I'll talk more about them in the mid-roll. Finally, there are still two $25 spots available on Patreon. These are the last two spots that will ever be open on that tier, so if you've been putting it off, grab your spot today. There are also spots available at the $15 a month level if you want to support, but can't quite commit to that $25 tier just yet. There's a spot in supporting for everyone's budget, and I truly thank you all for making this podcast possible. Hey folks, welcome to a new episode of the Whiskey Ring Podcast. Today we are back in America after... Uh, I think an episode or two where we're going around the world, but this one's back in America and going to the very center in the heartland. We are going to Kansas, which we've never been to. Uh, I've never been to in real life. We've never been to on the podcast. So first time for everything. And to talk about Boot Hill Distillery, I'm thrilled to welcome on Lee Griffith. Lee, welcome. David, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. So um, I forget exactly how we were connected, but uh, maybe I reached out, maybe you reached out. I don't know, but uh, I was glad to, to, I'm looking over the products right now. I was glad to get to taste these, get to try something from state and try something for, but let's pull back from all of that to start and just say from the clearest start, like what is Boot Hill? Well, so Boot Hill itself was a burial ground. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of, there's a little bit of history, kind of post-Civil War history that uh, factors into the name behind Boot Hill anyways. Um, they were, cons- uh, Boot Hills were like pauper's graves. Um, these were kind of scattered all throughout the American West. So if you kind of think again, post-Civil War, westward expansion, uh, you had you had outposts um, uh, that, that were not very well populated that were uh, maybe kind of lawless in some cases. Um, if you met your unfortunate demise in whatever community that was that was uh, up and coming at the time and nobody knew who you were, well, something had to be done with remains. And boot hills were, they say, they died with their boots on or were buried with their boots on. Uh, that's where the name boot hills come from. And we sort of lay claim you know, wearing that. So I'm, I guess, even backing up further, we're in Dodge City. And I think everyone has heard of Dodge City in some form or fashion, right? So um, get the hell out of Dodge. This is this is that Dodge, very Dodge City. Uh, for those that uh, uh, that grew up in the '50s through the '70s and watched Gunsmoke, that's where Dodge City was, or that's where Gunsmoke was set with Marshall Dillon and Miss Kitty. Um, for 20 years, you know, they came into your living rooms uh, with great Western stories. Um, so we're of that fame. Uh, get the hell out of Dodge. Yeah. You know, you hear it all the time in pop culture references. That's that's where we're at. So um, Boot Hill, by an extension, was, yes, Dodge City at the time, you know, was founded in the 1870s and, um, you know, had kind of a brief period of a violent past and and again if you met your unfortunate demise through you know yes it could have been violence but also injury illness um you know getting caught in an unfortunate snowstorm blizzard you know nobody knew who you were um something had to be done with the remains and so boot hills were uh shallow graves 
uh, as they say, they buried with their boots on or they died with their boots on where you can see the you know, boots sticking out of the ground. Uh, that's, that's again, kind of where the name comes from. How that ties into with us is the building that we're located on was built on top of the footprint of the original Boot Hill Cemetery in Dodge City. Um, now it was, uh, this was again, dating, you know, the, the burial ground dated to the 1870s, this building we're in dated to the 1920s. And so there was obviously quite a bit of time between the two, uh, um, uses for this ground, but, um, that's where we get the name from. That's a little backstory on, uh, you know, what, what boot hills were. I, I even ran into a boot hill in Virginia city, Montana, a couple of summers ago, you know, they were all over tombstone. I think has one, I think Deadwood's got one, you know, all these, all these sort of wild west outposts all had boot hills. We sort of lay flame to the more, one of the more famous ones just cause we're in Dodge city. So. I think I heard, uh, if I remember this correctly, it was one of my favorite lines that I heard while doing the research for this episode, which was, uh, as I said, it was a pauper's grave, so anyone could be buried there, but it did have in Dodge City and Deadwood and a lot of these places, it was an actual hill or a little yeah. bump on the ground at least. And uh, the joke was that you buried people who uh, were hanged there because they needed that extra bump to get to heaven. Yeah, they exactly. those first starts. They needed the extra height to try to get to heaven. That is that is very true uh, in regards to the, the legend and the lore for sure. So, you know, if you, uh, I, I guess to kind of give you a picture, since you've never been to Kansas, uh, to give you a picture of, of kind of where we're located and, and the geography and how this kind of ties into that. Um, I, I travel all over the state, I guess. Uh, so I'm the director of sales. I, I, I'm the guy that promotes our brand all throughout the state through our distributor or in conjunction with our distributor. So I know I see all corners of this state and Southwest Kansas is very unique, but Kansas, you know, yeah, you said we're in the middle of the country and it is very flat and it's definitely flat on, uh, on our side of the state. So we're in Southwest Kansas. Uh, the nearest major Metro to us is Wichita, which is about two and a half hours uh, to the East of us. Uh, you go another two hours to the West and you're in Colorado and another five hours and you're in Denver five, six hours and you're in Denver, uh, you know, Southwest and you're in Amarillo, Texas, you go further Southwest, you can go to Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, to kind of give you an idea where we're at, but we're, you know, we're on the high plains. This is all flat farm grain. And this is agricultural territory out here. Um, so when you're thinking of, of, you know, and drive, so when I, when I drive from Wichita to Dodge city, when I'm coming home, you know, it's, it is just, flat as a pancake, as it were, uh, you know, you can, if you're following a vehicle, you can see the ground underneath the vehicle, uh, uh in, in front of you. I mean, it's just that flat. Um, so hills kind of hard to come by, <laughs> you know, there's not, there's not much in the way of, uh, there's not much in the way of mountains. There's not much in the way of foothills. This is all flat. So, however, where we are kind of located here in, in the, the area around Dodge city, is there was a um, the highest hill, if you will, that was uh, just to the west of where the main uh, town was forming. Um, so they figured, you know, this was a it was clay, it was grassland, you know, it was populated by buffalo. Uh, there was several Native American tribes that were out here, but you know the 
you know, this was a dry, dusty, just out of the way waypoint. And, and the, the hill that the, that the burial ground was, was literally outside of town. It was on the outskirts of town at that time. You know, you picture this little front street uh, where all these old, you know, buildings with the facades and the saloons and the mercantile shops and all that were kind of forming up. Well, the hill was just to the outside of that. And uh, um, it was a, yeah, it was a the, the sort of the most palatial ground that anybody could find at that time for someone to lay their remains in. And again, these were people that, you know, not necessarily, you know, uh, uh, outlaws that that were uh, that were uh, received vigilante justice. Although that's uh, not to say that didn't happen, but you know, I think that, that might have been, you know, it was more people that were uh, that were unknowns that nobody knew who they were uh, that were that were buried up here. And so it was a cemetery. I'm kind of rambling. I realize, but it was a cemetery really for only about six years. Um, from 1872 to about 1878, and by the late 1870s, the town started to grow out this way. You know, that's when the that's when the the bodies were all disinterred, and you know, it started to be developed. The land started to be developed. So, um, yeah, the highest point, the highest point to try to help help people get to uh, heaven was you know hard to find in Southwest Kansas, and so this was about the best deal they could find. <laughs> that's fair. I it's. Again, having not been there, I, I can kind of imagine some of the flatter areas. I mean, I'm thinking of, I was driving, took a, tri- a trip up from like hitting all the national parks when I was younger. And granted, some of it, it's incredibly mountainous, of course, but there's also stretches in Colorado and Arizona, Nevada that are just flat. You can, you feel like you can see 40 miles ahead of you um, before the horizon hits. Um, and in some ways, I'll admit, as someone who like I'm a city boy, number one, so that in itself is disconcerting. But having also grown up, like you know, the Catskills are kind of nearby, and it's relatively like mountainous, kind of or hilly around it. Seeing that kind of flat expanse was very new for me, and I still remember to this day as being like, "Ooh, that's you got to kind of get used to that as you're as you're traveling." Uh, that being said, it was a fantastic trip. So. I have nothing bad to say about that. So, Certainly wide open spaces out here for sure. And, yeah. uh, you know, again, it's got its own beauty, uh, you know, the, and yeah. you know, trees are few and far between to find. That's where they used to burn, you know, Buffalo chips as, as a fuel source because there were no trees out here. It was right. just that. And, uh, that, that was all part of the, uh, part of daily life of trying to you know live and make your make your way in a as a as a person that was traveling through this area so it was not necessarily easy by any means sure sure. so uh, before we get deep into boot hill itself i wanted to i like to ask this question whenever i visit a new state a new country uh which is what does the distillery scene and spirit scene look like in kansas well, up and coming, I would say, is probably the, the, the one word answer. Um, here is, I'm probably going to get into a long-winded explanation again, but Kansas is <laughs> the birthplace of prohibition. You think of Cary Nation uh, smashing up bars in Wichita with a group of ladies, you know, uh, with axes. Cary Nation, uh, in fact, her home and museum is... Oh, probably about an hour and a half, two hours away from Dodge City. 
in Medicine Lodge, Kansas, which is close to the Oklahoma state line. So, you know, we have, a we, we being, we, the state of Kansas has this long history of prohibition. And, you know, it started here in 1881, the temperance movement. Uh, so alcohol was outlawed. Uh, the sale and consumption of alcohol was outlawed in 1881. You know, of course, here we are, you know, we're at what December 6th repeal day was yesterday. Right. Uh, so, you know, that was in 1933. Prohibition was in, 19, oh boy, 1920. To 20, 20? sorry, 22, uh, 22 yeah. yeah, 1922 to 33. So 1922, uh, that is 40 years-ish. I'm just rough math in my head of, uh, you know, federal prohibition uh, ahead that that Kansas was, you know, 40, Kansas was 40 years ahead of federal right. prohibition. So, and we were the last state that, not the last date, one of the last dates. So again, the, the 18th Amendment was repealed in uh, December 5th, 1933. Can you take a guess when Kansas ratified that? I feel like by, by what you said, I feel like it was very recently. <laughs> um, almost 70 years ago. So 1948, and I don't have the exact I mean, date. Still, that, that's 15 years after. That's still... Correct. It's a, yeah. yeah. So we weren't ready to embrace the repeal of federal you know, national prohibition. We as a state was not ready to until 1948. And even then, there were there were restrictions. I mean, there were um, a person could have a wholesale license to be a distributor. A person could have a retail license to sell liquor. Uh, in its original packaging um as far as bars and restaurants it kind of went to the private club side so you know you think of your of grandparent parents grandparents that carried around those fancy cases that had the you know they carry their liquor bottles in and and their cocktail shakers and mixing spoons and all that well that was that was you know that was the private clubs of all they all the club would provide was you know your mixers your tonic water and your soda and your coke or whatever and you know the the person uh had to provide the alcohol so you know that was that that was not uncommon through the 50s and 60s 70s it wasn't really until 1987 in kansas that um for those counties that wish to uh, remove the restriction of, of actually having a what they call a drinking establishment license, um, even then, the, there was the caveat: you couldn't just be a bar. You had to derive thirty percent of your sales from food, so you had to be a restaurant. And that that was in nineteen eighty seven. And just now, in in fact, we even had to change laws to have a tasting room in 2016 here in Ford County, Dodge City, to even be able to serve cocktails in a tasting room and not be a restaurant. So, and there are still counties in Kansas that are repealing that 30% food requirement just to have a bar, a drinking establishment. So I'm laying this groundwork for, to say that, this is the what we've gone through just to be able to have a drink. <laughs> now let's go back to what we're going through to be able to make it. <laughs> so 
distilling is relatively uh, is a relatively new industry within the state. Um, and by that, I mean in the last, uh, let's just say, 10 to 15 years. Um, believe it or not, there is a uh, there is a fairly robust wine industry in Kansas, and um, they have their Kansas wineries have been around since the 80s. Um, breweries obviously have been taking off with the craft brewing movement, and there's they're 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 growing, but distilling on the other hand is uh is a is a up and coming and growing industry here within our state. Um I want to say there's only six of us. And I'm that that that's a that's a rough number because sometimes there's little little bitty tiny distilleries that are kind of starting to crop up in and around the state. Um our DSP uh is 21003, if that gives you an idea. Yeah, very few. Yeah. Uh, but also, let's just look at the other side of that coin. One of the largest distilleries in the country is located in Kansas that nobody's sure. ever heard of, of course, is MGP in Atchison, which is the on the complete opposite side, north uh, northeast Kansas from where we are. Um, so, you know, yeah, you kind of have this weird dichotomy of, yeah, we've got one of the largest distilleries in the country that's actually here, but they're, you know, like again, they're MGP and then there's the craft movement guys like us. Uh, we're the only one in Southwest Kansas. Um, and, uh, there's, like I said, there's been a few that have been cropping up, uh, cropping, <laughs> no pun intended, um, uh, around the state, um, What's interesting also is that you have the uh, factor of Missouri. You know, we're right neighboring uh, it's our state to the east and Kansas City, Missouri. You know, of course, we have the Kansas City Chiefs, of which Kansas lays clay to, but they're actually in Missouri. So you've got a lot of Missouri distilleries that, that I, you know, they're based in Missouri. They are manufactured in Missouri, but um, they're... Um, Sometimes, especially on the closer to the state line, there's not much of a uh, understanding that there is a difference between Missouri and Kansas distilleries, and there's quite a few in Missouri, so it's a totally different world over there. Um, so that I don't know. That's kind of the lay of the land of you know we're. Uh, I'm not saying we're pioneers necessarily in any way, but there we're one of uh, of a few of the total company that's that's within the state. So sure. that's. And, and I know we're the only ones that have that have uh, or that are uh, that follow our concept of you know we're an agricultural cultural uh, company first. And we can get into that, um, and really one of the only ones that are that are uh, coming on that are that are using our own raw material. So anyway, that's kind of where we're at. When uh, Boot Hill Distillery was being uh, thought up, let's say, sure. so right at the beginning, uh, the as you said, you're an agricultural place first, right? Growing your own, uh, that's a lot of wheat in Kansas, most of all, then followed by corn. So a lot of uh, grain that fits whiskey for sure, but is not necessarily going to whiskey or spirits. Uh, Correct. With 
with so few, especially at that time, so few uh, kind of in-state to look at, uh, where did Boot Hill look at to kind of learn how to distill and learn what they wanted to make? So, um, yeah, we're farmer-owned. And and um, this is sort of an extension of five generations of family farming that uh, have been growing corn and wheat as a commodity and selling it off as a as a commodity. And the whole idea of starting a distillery was, you know, what else can you do with corn and wheat? How else can you add value to, you know, something that they've been doing anyways? In, in Western Kansas, you've got a couple of choices. Um, you can sell your corn off to an ethanol plant for creation of ethanol. You can start a cattle feeding operation and sell your own grain off to a, a feedlot or your own feedlot. And, and uh, you know, that's a way to vertically integrate um, a, a raw material or you can make whiskey out of it. And um, so uh, my boss, so we're owned by the Kelman Farms, uh, Hayes, Hayes Kelman. Uh, he was going to school at K-State with uh, uh, the idea of getting, doing something in agricultural, and, but also, you know, with the, with the mindset of I'm going to go back to the family farm and continue, uh, uh, continue doing what, what, what his dad had been doing and his grandfather before that. But what else can we do with it? You know, what else, how else can we add value to this business? Start a distillery and, and, you know, we're already making, we're already, they're already growing raw materials. It's, it's kind of a, a, a next step. And, you know, he wasn't going to get into the cattle business. <laughs> you know, they do sell corn off to an ethanol plant. So that's already you know, kind of part of that. But, um, you know, the idea of uh, that, that was the whole idea of doing it. Um, and I, sorry, I guess I kind of lost your question. Uh, no, so the, so the, you were providing the kind of the background of how, I get, or no, the, let me rephrase that. You were providing the context in which the idea came to be. Um, I'm also thinking about though. Okay, so the the decision is made. We might want to start a distillery. Um, where do you look for? Like inspiration, inspiration. yeah, inspiration. Sorry. Um, so there is really, you know, as you well know, in this country, there is like no formal education. It's not like you can go to school. Not like any Kansas, certainly not any Kansas distilleries. Uh, very few, you know, formal education has any kind of distilling science out there. So it's largely uh, mentoring. Um, Finding friends in the industry, going to uh, conferences like you know ADI and ACSA that put on, uh, and um, it, it's really kind of you know pardon the pun again, but you know bootstrapping it, and figuring it out yourself. It's a lot of trial and error. Um, so I, I guess maybe I should back up on on my involvement with the distillery. So I was not personally involved at that phase. I didn't come on really until the grand opening and was giving tours. Uh, and I've been with the distillery this whole time since. Uh, and that was seven years ago. Um, I do know that, you know, uh, Hayes had the opportunity to uh, have someone from Maker's Mark come out and consult. And uh, he actually turned him down. Uh, he said, you know, if I wanted to make whiskey that tasted like Maker's Mark, that's they're already doing that. He says, I'm, I'm wanting to create something that is unique to what we're doing. 
And, you know, the process, you know, distilling, distilling and distilling science, once you get it all figured out, that process doesn't change. You know, at that point, you're getting into, uh, you know, the the differentiation you get into, you know, the quality of the grain, where it's coming from, uh, distillation practices, obviously, of of trying to get as much yield in your fermentations and uh, in your mash and in your fermentations, your starch to sugar conversion. And then, of course, how narrow you make your cuts. That's kind of what we can control. Um, in addition to the raw materials. And so, yeah, there, there was trial and error. I mean, there, I know there were stories of adding whole grain, whole kernel corn into our mash tun and, uh, and turning it up and having it burn on the bottom of the mash tun because, uh, they were just not doing things correctly and, and learning and figuring it out. This was, this was early on before we even opened. I like to, you know, I, I like to tell people that when we opened our doors in July of 16, we literally had nothing to sell but t-shirts and glassware. I mean, so we had some distilled spirits that were selling, you know, that we were serving in samples. And again, we can only pour a sample because mm-hmm. our laws had not caught up or we had not changed our county laws to be able to serve a drink. So all we could do was half ounce sample. We had very little distilled at that point. Um, this was a literally a ground up operation, and um, so yeah, trial and error. And then you know, once you get the basic process down, then it's refining that process uh, to um, to be more efficient, uh, to get as much volume, much yield as you can, while still having a quality uh, distillate coming out of the end of that still. So. Um, Short answer, trial and error, in, in, in our case, anyways. Um, trial and error, mentoring, figuring figuring stuff out. I mean, that's kind of what it comes down to. I, I think that's, it's not spoken about enough as part of the process of figuring the stuff out that even, you know, you look at a, a, let's say a very established company has been around for like one of the heritage distilleries in Kentucky, let's say, but if they come out with a new product, they still got to do the trial and error too. Sure. They just because they have so many other products and all the history and all that uh, they can. Um, and for, cause it's an audio podcast viewers didn't see, I just kind of instinctively rolled my eyes because the, the history can sometimes hide the real story and the real on the ground work that happens that. Uh, um, so for example, let's do a concrete example that also won't get us in trouble. Uh, last night I got to go to an event at um, it's a very fun event. It, was all about Clermont Steep. So Jim Beam's American Single Malt. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a product that Freddie No is kind of taking the lead on. It took five to six, it was five plus years old. So it took at least five, six, maybe seven years to get it to where it is now. I mean, it wasn't like they ran, they put 100% malted barley into the fermenter and then it's the cooker and and the still and came out with it right the first time. I highly doubt it. I can't say I know for certain, but I, I would bet against that. Uh, would, and whether it took them five or 500 tries to get it right, even the big guys take time to get it right. And when you're coming from uh, a background where there aren't many around you or many distilleries around you to kind of look at, to say, okay, maybe this starting point will help. Like definitely don't throw whole grain into the, uh, the mash yeah mill it first first. and mill it to you know small yeah first um you know you you got to try it could take 10 15 20 just to get the size of your flour right basically that that you want to mill it to 
So it's, it's worth pointing out. Um, so from there, I, I would love to just jump into what does your production look like from, you know, getting the grain in from your farms to, uh, all the way through the distillation. Sure. Um, so, you know, we're in the, because we're sourcing our own raw materials, um, for, for us to get experimental and, and, and we have at this point for us, but I'm kind of going back to sort of the early days, you know, our mash bill is primarily corn and wheat, um, to get into, uh, to get to the point where we're, where we're, uh, I get the question all the time, when do you have a rye whiskey? No, we don't. Um, and at that time, we in the early years, we absolutely, absolutely did not. So we had to kind of wait through a whole growing season to, you know, develop a new product. If it's going to be rye, if we're going to play with, say, uh, Milo or sorghum, uh, you know, you've got to wait a growing season to have enough of a uh, to, to to harvest enough grain to be able to use. Um, now, truthfully, what comes to what comes to the distillery off total production of these farms is not very much at this point. Probably less than one percent of what total production is. So it's not a, a large amount. And and if, if forgive me, I'm if if I have to get into bushels and pounds and all that, I I glaze over. So I'm, I'm I go for it. I'm not. I'm actually not good at that at all. So um, so we distill in. Uh, uh, starting with a thousand pounds of grain. Uh, it's in fact, the truck was rolled up, grain truck was rolled up yesterday uh, and loaded into our grain bins. So we've got on-site, on-site grain storage. Um, there's three um, uh, silos, if you will, or not really silos. They're just grain handlers um, that will hold roughly three quarters of a truckload. Um and again, we're one of them's going to have full corn. One is going to be full of hard red winter wheat. We've got a third one that is either extra storage or can put uh, another grain that we might be playing with or going to play with. Um, so, um, you know, they're pulling grain. So the farm itself is in sublet Kansas. And again, nobody has heard of sublet Kansas at all until today, maybe. And it's 50 miles to the southwest of Dodge City. So grain has to come from uh, where their grain storage is, which I believe is on site, uh, filled into a uh, grain truck. And I'm talking a semi, a semi load, not like the, the, not an old, you know, farm grain truck that's, you know, you kind of imagine. <laughs> uh, well, I guess you've never seen one of those grain trucks that sit on the side of the highway. It's not one of those. It's actually a full semi load. Anyway, so that comes 50 miles from Sublet. Uh, we um, get backed into the back of our uh, distillery and augured into our uh, our storage facility here. Um, so in, in the creation of, uh, so from there it goes through a, a milling process and we've kind of got this all I'm not going to say automated, but grain handling through augers and uh, through an auger system uh, and a weigh bin system. So we're going to weigh out basically a thousand pounds of grain at a time. And so for our bourbon mash, we're going to weigh out 510 pounds of corn, 490 pounds of wheat. That goes through a, a hammer mill, which takes it from whole grain into consistency of flour or kind of a coarse corn meal. 
And then that gets augered up into the building uh, and falls directly into our mash tun. So I'm kind of like on, on cook mash day itself. Um, our mash tun, we're basically set up to handle 500 gallons at a time. Mash tun fermenters are all 500 gallon uh, uh, capacity. Although we have increased, we've purchased two new thousand gallon fermenters. So we've essentially doubled that. Um, from there, uh, corn and wheat, you know, it's milled flour. It's basically cooking a, cooking a mash of, uh, to separate starch into sugar. And, um, you know, that's what a six, seven hour process if we're doing, and this is just in, in a day, we have not really added an extra shift at this point. So, uh, it is theory, you know, we can do two, two mash cooks in a day. It's a long, you know, 10-ish, 12-hour day in some cases. But uh, um, I guess also maybe I should back up a little and give you a scope of, you know, who we've got doing this. I, so in my first three months, I was doing it. I don't do that anymore. I'm pretty much only on the road guy. Uh, we have a distiller. Uh, her name is Stephanie. She's been with us for almost four years, maybe a little over four years now. I can't remember. Started in 2019, whatever that is. Uh, um, and so she's basically the one that's running the still room and handling everything from beginning to end. Um, from there, so, you know, mashes get uh, transferred from, you know, into our fermenters. We have four 500-gallon fermenters. Uh, so it's sort of this waterfall effect. We have four fermentations running at once, uh, running consecutively, excuse me. Uh, and then those get dumped into a 500-gallon pot still. And so everything is initially pot stilled for our stripping runs. Um, out of that 500, well, let's just say, yeah, yeah, 500 gallon uh, fermentation, you get about 125 gallons ish of low wines. Uh, so that's almost all four fermenters to get to about 500 gallons of low wines, give or take, mm -hmm. maybe 600 gallons ish. And then, of course, that gets dumped back into the uh, uh, second still. So we've got the the pot still used to run our whiskey. We've upgraded to a uh, hybrid column slash gin still. Uh, that's where our whiskey and gin is made um, for the uh, final spirit run. Um, for other products, I mean, you know, so we're, you know, again, a young distillery. I'm just kind of specifically talking about whiskey, but, you know, we started like any young distillery does is you make vodka first. And so we've got some production goes to vodka. Some of it goes to eventually being gin. Some of it goes to whiskey. Some of it goes to some of the other products that we that we make. So um, uh, from there, you know, either if it's whiskey, it gets filled into a barrel, goes away. We have offsite rickhouse now. Uh, for the aging process and then for our clear spirits, pretty well ready to be bottled whenever we're, whenever we're uh, in need of selling it to our distributors. So um, yeah, that kind of in a nutshell is grain. We call it, uh, so we, you know, again, we're one of the few distilleries in the country that are farmer owned, that are, that are, you know, that have that level of control. You know, you've heard of grain to glass, a common common phrase nothing nothing wrong with that at all uh we call we like to call it soil to sip <laughs> uh you know we're from the minute seeds are planted from the minute you take your first sip we've had 100 percent control over the whole process so we're we're trademarking i think soil to sip is our 
<laughs> soil to sit distillery is sort of our is sort of our tagline. So um hey, if no one's trademarked it already, I mean if, grab if it. If we throw it, we don't make it. Yeah. No, it makes sense. If, and I, I really mean if you can grab that trademark, do it because it's you've heard farm to the table, we've heard farm to glass, grain to glass, but sip to soil when I when I heard that uh I don't know, Wild West podcast or maybe one of the other ones. Uh I was like, oh, that's a new way to put it. I haven't heard, I genuinely have not heard that before. So that, yeah. you know, you got anything to differentiate helps anything brand set ourselves point. apart. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Soil to sip. Yeah. I think we've got t shirts, <laughs> stickers, and, and, uh, quite a bit of marketing that's kind of gone into that as well. So, nice. uh, it, again, it's kind of, you know, it's, if there's anything that does set us apart, it's, it's our, it, you know, we're, farmer distillers, if you will. And so I'm not saying there's anything wrong with sourcing, you know, your grain from regional, local, well, that's perfectly fine. But if you've got the ability to do so, that's, that is unique, I think, in, in this world, what we're, you know, in, in a crowded field of, of a lot of distillers. Definitely. Uh, do you have a particular yeast strain that you'd like to use? Good question. Actually, it's pretty simple. I, uh, no, um, I, I, I'm trying to think if I could even tell you what the numbers of the strain are. In, in this case, uh, the company that we're buying it from, it literally says whiskey yeast or vodka yeast. And, you know, the, the yeast, I, I think, is more... We're using strains that are that are designed to run as hot and fast as possible, to create as much ethanol as possible. Um, I know I'm not saying that there's not, you know, more nerdy ways of doing that, of, of, you know, getting certain flavor profiles out of, uh, uh, you know, a particular, you know, say heirloom or a, an ancient yeast strain or, or uh, something avant-garde, but in our case, it's, it's whiskey yeast, it's vodka yeast. Uh, our goal is to try to get as much ethanol out of that starch sugar conversion as possible. So uh, it went not overcomplicated. We, we, we tried not to overcomplicate it and we're still using those two, two basic yeast strains, uh, for, for that process. Yeah, nothing wrong with it. And in, in my mind, certainly if it, if it works for you and if it's accomplishing the goals you want to do is totally fine. We've had people on here who do everything from exactly what you're doing to some who claim they have their, you know, grandpappy's yeast that they found somewhere, um, to a couple of people who genuinely do go out and trap yeasts in different places and they've got, you know, Kvike yeast from Iceland that they've found and brought over. Right. Um, but I, I mean, I am fascinated by the science of yeast, but I'm also coming around to the idea that it's about what you want to accomplish. And if that works best for what you want to accomplish, then it, that works. Absolutely. Works you know, I think the beer world, I, I know that there's a lot more nuance, you know, in the, in the beer world of, you know, what flavors certain strains of yeast are going to pr produce. Um, you know, we like to just say that yeast is not smart. Yeast is kind of dumb. And the only thing we can really do is keep it from killing itself. <laughs> yep. and monitor, you know, monitor the heat and make sure it does not, you know, doesn't start to get stressed and, and keep it as happy as possible. So it doesn't start to throw off funky or off flavors. And that's all we can do. And, and, and again, yeah, like you say, the goal is in our case is, um, is, uh, quantity, you know, again, how much ethanol can we, uh, try to, you know, how much, how efficient can that fermentation be to, uh, uh, 
gain get enough alcohol that we can then subsequently you know distill boil out distill out so that that's the goal and yeah we just wasn't as overcomplicated for those that are forging their own and you know finding wild yeast uh i mad respect there <laughs> that's a that's a whole different level but uh uh yeah in our case just keep it simple and let's, let's get as much ethanol as we can out of it the Barkhart Co-op is a group of five shows with something for everyone. First up is My Whiskey Den, hosted by Mike Lisak, Pat Bologna, and Mitch Weddle. Listen and watch live on Mondays at 9 for thoughts and discussions on craft spirits and, once in a while, some downright odd things. And yes, I'm talking about the cantaloupe liqueur that I can't believe could be good, yet I gotta admit, it's fantastic. Next up is Bourbon Turntable, hosted by Kevin Rose and Drew Crawley. Kevin and Drew are true lovers of both music and bourbon, and I got to join them to talk about my own whiskey and music journey back in March. It's still one of my favorite episodes I've ever been a part of, and it's a show that I listen to every single week. The next two are from a guy you may have heard of. After all, he's a two-time guest on the Whiskey Ring podcast. Mr. Alan Bishop, head alchemist at Spirits of French Lick and self-proclaimed reviver of the history of Indiana's Black Forest. Alan has two shows in the co-op both of which are also weekly listens for me. The first one is Distiller's Talk with co-host Christy Atkinson. It's probably the nerdiest spirits podcast I know of, and that's including my own, and I absolutely love it. Some weeks you'll be talking capturing wild yeast in long-gone ghost distilleries in the Black Forest region. Others you'll be hearing from some of the most exciting up-and-comers in the distilling, brewing, and overall spirits-producing industry. Most of these distilleries he's gone, I've never even heard of them before the episode, but after listening... All I want to do is find out more and explore new ways of looking at spirits and all the nerdy stuff that I love about this industry. And last but certainly not least is Alan's other podcast, If You Have Ghosts, You Have Everything. Exploring the paranormal side of Hoosier-occupied Kentucky, Alan intertwines his own experiences with stories about neighbors, colleagues, and local legends, and why you should never go into the forest alone at night. Part scary story part homage to the rich history of Southern Indiana, this show comes straight from Alan's heart and soul. Take a listen or watch to any of these amazing shows, and thank you to the Barcar Co-op community for welcoming me. Join the community on Facebook, follow on Instagram and YouTube, and you'll have another show for every day of the week. This month's Impact Spotlight is on Nicknean. Founded by Annabelle Thomas, Nicknean has a pioneering approach to spirit making, putting innovation and sustainability at the forefront. Through Nicknean, Annabelle seeks to change the way the world thinks about whiskey from Scotland and to create a whiskey which could exist in harmony with our planet and its inhabitants. Nicknean has created a spirit with exceptional body and sweetness, showcasing their smooth and elegant house style. This is achieved through a combination of sourcing high-quality organic Scottish barley, gentle fermentation and distillation processes, and maturation in a combination of three carefully selected cask types. Ex-American whiskey casks STR, shaved, toasted, and recharred casks that held red wine, and a small amount of Oloroso sherry casks. The result is flavors of lemon sherbet, juicy stone fruits, and spiced rye bread. This whiskey is set to disrupt the industry through Nicknean's commitment to sustainability and creative approach to distilling. With an uncompromising focus, the small team of eco-conscious drinks fanatics also dedicate 10% of their spirit production to trialing different yeasts, not commonly found in whiskey distilling. 
all on their journey to seek out and find new flavors in their whiskey making. If you're a longtime listener, you know how interested I am in whiskeys and distilleries like this, and how excited I am that Impex is now bringing it stateside. Annabelle will be visiting Chicago for Whiskey and Barrel Night on October 25th, and will be hosting special masterclasses featuring the key components of Nignin, along with their core organic single malts. These tastings will also include a sneak peek of Quiet Rebels Gordon. Only 630 bottles of the special one-time-only release will be coming to the States, so it's a release and an event you won't want to miss. Nignin Organic Single Malt is currently on its way to specialty retailers across the U.S., for more information and questions on where to buy, please contact the Impex Beverages office at office at impexbev.com and follow on social media to never miss a release. The Whiskey Ring Podcast is proudly sponsored by Impex Beverages. Hey, it works, it works. So as part of this uh, interview, I got to try, um, and thank you for, uh, you know, I have to, I like to do a disclosure. Thank you for sharing these two bottles. I got to try the bourbon whiskey and the straight wheat whiskey yes and uh so the bourbon whiskey as you uh, uh alluded to earlier it's 51 percent corn 49 percent wheat and you said hard red winter wheat correct and then the oops the uh, straight wheat whiskey is that's a hundred percent wheat yes correct yes yes um and respectively the bourbon is at uh 90 proof and then the straight wheat whiskey at 100 proof so 45 and 50 percent abv um just to set the timeline the did the bourbon or the wheat whiskey come first bourbon actually came out first um yeah in regards to bottling it wheat was uh, and i don't remember the exact time in between but wheat came out a little later than the bourbon did okay. and then for uh i guess both products but let's start off with with the bourbon um did you and by you of course i mean the whole boot hill team did sure. you have a particular taste profile in mind that you wanted to hit or was it more of that uh you know trying and seeing what happened until you hit one that you really liked a little more of the trying and the trial and error part of it i think um you know, you hear of weeded bourbons and, you know, the, the, the popularity of weeded bourbons and, you know, Kansas is the wheat state and it just, you know, going, using the guidelines that we have given to us by the TTB of, you know, bourbon has to have no less than 51% corn in it. Well, what else can you, you know, what else can you, uh, uh, use in that 49%? So notice also you say um, that there's only two grains. We're not using any kind of malted barley. Right. Uh, uh, reason being is there's no, there, A, we weren't growing barley at that time. So there's that. Again, if we can't grow it, we're not making it. Early on, 2016, we were not growing barley. The farms were not producing barley. There was no reason to. Um. And then there was no, there is no uh, malting infrastructure anywhere close to here. So we weren't going to buy it. Obviously, you could have bought malted, you know, malted grain, but that was kind of our hard stop of this is not going to be part of our uh, our ethos. So fortunately, there's a way to get around that is using an amylase, the alpha amylase that aids in starch sugar conversion. So we figured out we can do, all right, let's, let's, 
let's use our uh, 51% corn mash bill, take it to the limit of 49% wheat. We can use an amylase in the starch sugar conversion. Um, so that's kind of where that mash bill landed. Now, you also take into consideration, you know, corn by itself, especially new make, can be pretty rough. And, you know, that's where it takes the time of spending time in the barrel to, you know, sort of shave off those rougher notes. So I always like to say that wheat counteracts that and wheat adds a certain softness uh, to um, kind of definitely the finish. Uh, so, again, if we can use that highest wheat content, well, let's do it. Um, again, keep it simple in some respects. Uh, not overcomplicate with weird... Uh, you know, I, I know that we have distilled 100% corn. Uh, obviously, we were distilling 100% wheat because that's within the bottle right now, and that's what's out. So that was there was a little bit of forethought, you know, or in in the early years. Um, I guess also kind of backing up, you know, is this is all our distillate, and we started off making and bottling the younger versions of the bourbon. So we have what we call white whiskey. It's refined moonshine is all it is, but it did spend some time in a barrel just to bring in a little bit of color. Uh, the next iteration, we called it red eye whiskey, sort of an homage to a style of whiskey you would have gotten in Dodge City in the 1880s. Uh, and, you know, it's still the same bourbon mash, but we might've reused some of the barrels. So it didn't meet the qualifications for bourbon in that regard. Um, but, you know, we were sticking with that mash bill this whole time, but holding barrels back longer mm -hmm. until you got to uh, a point that we were ready to bottle it. Um, so, yeah, we started out again, you know, we had vodka, we had gin, but on the on the whiskey side, it was it was young whiskeys where we started off with. And we still they're still out of the market. They're, they're selling. <laughs> uh, that's where we started off with. Um, I think it's kind of unique in the way of that's. It sort of shows you how the aging process, how the barrel starts to take effect of that over time. Of you know, my white whiskey to the bourbon whiskey is obviously just night and day of uh, flavor profiles, but the base distillate is the exact same, um, same mash bill. Um, so uh, yeah, again, keep it simple. I think is probably the best way to, to, to. Uh, and again, you know, this was this was distilled back in. You know, we're talking about whiskey that was distilled four and five. Uh, let's just say two to two to five years ago. Um, so using anything else has come. You know, a it had to be grown, so you had to go through the whole growing season. You know, like I said, I mentioned, we actually have grown bar barley and we had aged and I have aged barley whiskey, unmalted, mind you, because again, no malting houses. Um, we've played with some, I've got rye. We finally grew rye. We finally harvested rye, distilled it. It's in barrels. That was two-ish years ago. You know, so we're that, you, the, what do they say? The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. <laughs> right. Essentially what we're doing is, you know. Trying to trying to plan, trying to plan for several years in the future, but also you know living in the now. What, what have we got right now? So um, I don't know. It's kind of getting long winded. And I'm getting off the rails. So if that kind of answers your question, no, no definitely. And uh, before I forget, where do you get your barrels from? Primarily, we've sourced them from uh, all over the country, but primarily, uh, we've had the best luck with ISC International Stave out of Lebanon, Missouri. Um, 
they've they provided us with some pretty good barrels but we've sourced them kind of from mostly the midwest i know uh, minnesota and maybe even northern missouri a couple other companies that we've kind of played with barrels from but we did run into uh here you know 2021 ish of all of a sudden barrel companies were going er, we're not gonna be able to get you barrels and we we were kind of scrambling there for a while. I think a lot of those have kind of shaken loose now and production is resumed, but uh, we did have a bit of a scare of not being able to get barrels, at least so we thought. So, but uh, it was, kind of, it was a rough time for everybody at that, that time. So, yeah, yeah, there was just all kinds of it didn't matter if it was bottles, it was corks, it was cardboard. There's all kinds of things that just, what, what day is it now and what are we going to not going to have? So, fortunately, I think we're past a lot of that. So looking at the uh, at the two bottles that I have, each of them has a different person on it. So there's a, a motif of uh, a lot of cowboys in a line on the bottom yes. of the main label. And yes. then on the right side of the logo, uh, painting a picture, we've got two figures. Now, I use this term tentatively and loosely because I'm not sure what the answer is, but... Who are the gentlemen who are on each bottle? Fair. Okay, so I'm going to preface this by saying there are exceptions to every rule. So I mentioned early on that, you know, Dodge City is known probably most popular from the television show Gunsmoke. And Marshall Dillon and Miss Kitty and Festus and Doc Adams, you know, if if you're a fan of the show, you're going to know all those characters. There was a conscious decision when we were creating our labels to kind of not do use the pop culture aspect of Dodge City as a way to, as, as part of the brand. We really want to try to focus more on the actual history of Dodge City. So, you know, Wyatt Earp, Bat Masterson, Doc Holliday, those guys were all in Dodge City for a short period of time. And our main street, which is Highway 50, is called Wyatt Earp Boulevard. Um, so we do, you know, as a town, we do, uh, pay homage to, you know, the, the actual characters and, and people of the, of, you know, of that, that were now, I guess, deemed famous that were in Dodge city at the time. Um, so to answer the question on the bourbon, uh, we have actual landmarks. And so the, you see on the bottom side of that label is the kind of outline of the Cowboys silhouetted. Those are that's an actual uh, silhouette statue you see as you're coming in on the on the uh, east side of town out by the airport. Uh, there was some on the west side, but there's been highway construction and they've uh, since removed those statues or to be replaced later. But the, that outline of the Cowboys is sort of iconic it, if you're traveling through this part of the country and certainly traveling into Dodge City. Uh, that that silhouette is instantly recognizable. So that's what you see instantly on the bottom side of the bottle. Yes. So then we wanted to go again, actual history. We have a trail of fame. We have uh, over the last 10, 15 years, uh, statues are been uh, uh, placed in and around town of Wyatt Earp, of Doc Holliday, of Bat Masterson. And so the gentleman that is on the bourbon bottle is Wyatt Earp. And that was a statue that was placed in sits or stands, I guess, if you will, at Wider Boulevard and Central Avenue, probably about three or four blocks away from here. Um, that is the actual statue. He was placed there and I want to say the early 2000s, so not necessarily all that long ago. Um, so that's wider. Um, without saying it, it's not that doesn't 
it is not on the bottle anywhere. It's not on our back label. It's, but you know, he's, he sits there. So each bottle has its own unique uh, landmark, actual landmark here in Dodge City. So our red eye whiskey had the image of the steam engine that it just sit, uh, 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 Dodge City was formed, you know, in part from uh, the expansion of the railway that was coming out at that time. So steam and rail travel was very important to the growth of this city at one time. Uh, so that's on our red eye whiskey on the uh, white whiskey bottle. We have the image of the steer, you know, Dodge city was then later known as the, as the end of the trail for driving cattle from Texas. So the image of the steer is iconic for this area. Uh, so he's on the white whiskey label. Um, and again, these are actual landmarks on our gin bottle. Um, we've got the image of doc holiday and that's a statue that's literally down the hill from where we're at right now. Uh, image of doc holiday. Okay. So now the exception part. Uh, on our wheat whiskey, that gentleman is <laughs> James Arness portraying Marshall Dillon from TV's Gunsmoke. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so the only reason is because that statue was placed, I want to say in 2015, uh, maybe. No, excuse me. No, later than that. We opened in 2016. So 2017, I think, was when Matt Dillon was placed at the Visitor Center. So it is an actual life-size uh, uh, bronze statue of uh, James Arness playing Marshall Dillon from TV's Gunsmoke. So he is the one because it's an actual statue, not just a not just a photo, but he is an actual statue that's down. I can I can walk down there. If, if you were here, it would take ten minutes to walk there or less uh, to go get your picture taken with Marshall Dillon. So he's the one that's on the wheat whiskey logo. Gotcha. No, it makes sense. And I. From a uh, a marketing standpoint, I do enjoy it. The I've been harping on on the marketing and and the bottle design recently, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just something I'm noticing more of. Uh, I I like how, as you said, it's not called out somewhere. You know, if someone is a big fan of of westerns, western history, um, watch Gunsmoke, they might look at that and say, yeah. you know, how how did you miss that? Of course, that's what that is, or of course, that's why it are you know. Um, I, I don't have as much of a history with that. So that, you know, I had a feeling one of them was, and honestly, I saw the hat, a cowboy, uh, not a cowboy hat, a, um, the hat on Marshall Dillon. And I thought that could be Doc Holliday just because of the, you know, the hat, but I, you know, I'm mostly ignorant when it comes to all of that. Uh, but the fact that it's not called out, it's just, you get the sense that, okay, there's a figure on the label that has some importance to the brand, to the history. Um, they're not calling it out. So I don't know, maybe I'll go on the website, take a look at it. Maybe I'll try to figure out who's famous from Dodge city. If I, if I don't know at that point. Um, but at the same time, when you're investigating that label, you're seeing everything else that I would want to see on this label. You're seeing, you know, is it, what kind of release is it limited release for the bourbon single estate for the straight wheat whiskey, it's Dodge City, Kansas. It's um, it's on the label, but fairly small font. So, like you said, it's not you're not trying to sell it because it's Dodge City whiskey. It's Boot Hill Distillery that happens to be in Dodge City. Right. Born from a barrel, forged in the dust. Love that tagline. And then the bottom label, it's split label. So the bottom label is 
all the information that I want to see. It's got the mash bill, the grown, milled, mashed, fermented, distilled, and bottled all by Boot Hill, right. um, proof and volume. Although, weirdly enough, and I don't know how this happened, um, the the bottle of the bourbon that I got, um, you know, it was, it was handwritten, you know, the barrel with the bottle number um, did not have a proof and alcohol on there. True story. Yeah, that that's why that was a sample bottle. That's why <laughs> <laughs> we had a we had a bit uh we had some labels printed, I think, for a potential single barrel project, and it didn't it they were mistakenly pulled for a regular one. And so before we, we'd gotten through the bottling line and realized, oh shit, we've got the wrong labels on here. So a lot of them went to promo and or we've been writing the ABV on those and just selling them out of our tasting room too. It's all legal. Uh, but yeah, that was that was kind of one of those uh, oh shit moments. And uh, that's why it got to be promo and probably why it got to be bottles that uh, not going to see a liquor store shelf. <laughs> that's fine. That that makes it a little more unique in my mind. It's, you know, yeah, I know that I know the story behind this bottle. So, yeah. It gave us some flexibility to be able to play with the ABV uh, a little right. bit and just handwrite it on there. But yeah, that was it was a it was it happened during a regular bourbon bottling, and all of a sudden that was the wrong. It was you know it's very nuanced. It's not it doesn't just jump out to you on that bottom label. And so by the time we figured it out, we had to stop and basically change labels and then continue on because the the other label definitely has the it's all printed on there. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, the for example, I know the wheat whiskey is a different uh, label, but same kind of it's a different label, but the same kind of idea of design with the uh, and and the ABV and proof are printed on there. Yes, uh, and then the the batch and the bottle number are then handwritten. So, in both cases, though, they they show that homage something that's going to stand out on a shelf. I think it's not just your basic. You know, this is bourbon label. Um, and if you're, like I said, if you're interested and you have an affinity for Western and the, anything that goes along with it, you're going to see the silhouettes of the cowboys and be interested. Right. So that, that pops we, we try to put these little Easter eggs that you find on the labels and it, they're, they're just there, you know. Um, the, the other one that that is on the bottom label that I... I particularly enjoy just because of the stupid humor is it says authentic boot Hill spirit in every bottle. And that of course is because we're on a burial <laughs> ground. So different kind of spirit on boot Hill today. No, I do appreciate that one. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and this is an admittedly very weird thought and it's a quick tangent side note. Um, so you're, you have a boot Hill. It's only an operation in, Dodge City for approximately six years. Uh, I, I don't know how many people were buried there during that time, but however many it was, you're digging out the hill to then bury people. Yes. And obviously, you know, putting the dirt back. And then you disinter them Correct. in 1878 so that uh, a, a schoolhouse is built there instead. Correct. So you're disinterring from the hill, burying them somewhere else. Now, yeah. I, I can't help thinking about this location and the the hill just kind of getting smaller and smaller as we're so you've already gotten you're already hunting for for 
hills to begin with for mounds of land to begin with and this right. one just kind of keeps getting drawn down over the years uh, i don't know that's the image that came to mind when it's I interesting it. so there is a photo of one of the first houses that was built um as as the settlement was coming into formation in the in 1870 1871 1872 that is taken from uh looking to the northwest in the hills in the background you can see it there's nothing i mean there's a little sod house and oddly it looks like a pole of some sort but um and then the guy that built the house is standing in front of it but you can see the hill in the background um yeah, to your point, there's been there's been so much uh, change. I mean, this is all built up. Uh, you know, to the just to the south of me is our museum, which is Boot Hill Museum. That's really does the best job of telling the story and the history of this area. Um, part of that was excavated to uh, uh, to build that. I think prior, and that was in the fifties. You know, that Boot Hill Museum didn't come along until the nineteen fifties. If you visited Dodge City in the 1920s to the 30s, you actually came to this building. So this was not a schoolhouse. The building, I guess I should say, the, the building that we're in is the old city hall. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the schoolhouse was torn down in 1927, and then this building was completed in 1929. And it was city hall, so police department, fire department, city jail. I'm coming to you from the city jail right now. Um, hence the brick wall behind me. Um, the judges' chambers, the city court, and and the uh, again the firehouse was all here. So the only landmark that the city had was in our front yard, and and local citizenry at that time had created this sort of mock-up cemetery, and that's what you would visit if you came to you know the world famous Boot Hill in Dodge City in the nineteen twenties nineteen thirties before this ever came along. So. Uh, I don't know. It's always, I guess, been iconic, and and it has been excavated out over the years. Um, uh, yeah, interesting to to think about. Uh, and, and you're right; the the bodies were disinterred. They were moved to a lo no, another location. Uh, they were disinterred again and moved to a third location. Um, so they had a, quite an interesting interesting history as far as that goes as well. Um, I, I guess I can't, if you, if I can indulge you, there was a story on the construction of this, of finding bones, uh, that's kind of amusing. Um, so yeah, we had to do some earthwork to, uh, uh, build new, or, uh, pour concrete for a new parking lot and the front sidewalks of this place. The building had been, was in pretty bad shape and had been not, not been occupied for, for several years. And so we had to do quite a bit of work to, uh, to, uh, make it look good again and part of that was a new parking lot well some bones did turn up uh in excavation and construction stopped i mean at that point uh, uh authorities are notified and you know the yellow tape goes up and it's a serious deal for for that and and it, so i'm i'm also relaying the story as a as a third hand probably uh, account <laughs> so i was not here at that time um but a couple of bones were found. Uh, the authorities were notified. Um, forensic analyst came out from Wichita to analyze the remains. And apparently they were pretty quickly determined. One was uh, from a dog. <laughs> and another one is he, and I don't know quite 
how this determination, but also pose more questions. He says his other bone came from a llama. So what was a llama yeah, that, doing? On yeah, this? exactly. That that does make sense. <laughs> that doesn't make sense at all. And and pretty assuredly made that uh, uh, made that uh, claim. So I don't know. Anyway, we still have those bones as sort of uh, souvenirs. But uh, to the best of anyone's knowledge, so to answer your, kind of the other question, by best records, maybe 30 to 32 uh, remains were uh, uh, laid to rest here for a short time. Uh, by best by best guess, Wyatt Earp did some interviews in the 1920s where I think he was even inflating the numbers himself up to 80 or 90 bodies, but I don't that's that's a little overblown. The actual number, I think 30 is 30 to 32 is about the best reasonable number. Could have been more, could have been less, but these were people that again, nobody knew who they were. So oh, and I'm oh, sorry, this is gonna be a total jump. Just I want to go back to the uh building too, but Something else I meant to say earlier, which was, uh, you said that corn distillate yes. when it's young can be pretty rough. I completely agree. It's, it can be pretty, yeah, let, let's keep it rough just to, yeah. in fairness to it. Um, but I have heard, as you said too, that wheat can kind of round it out. So I've talked to a few producers who make a four grain bourbon or four grain whiskey, yep. and that's basically a lot of what they say is they, they're adding the wheat in particular you know they they are the the corn is for the volume the rye for the flavor the barley for the enzymes and then they add the wheat because it softens it enough so that they can sell it at two three four years old instead of having to wait for however long um i i think i've agreed with them in some cases not agreed in others in terms of how it came out but that's also palette by palette but sure. i just wanted to go back to that for a second because i i remembered as you said that, that I'd had those, I'd had that said to me before. So I'm going to validate what you had said. <laughs> so I'm not crazy. <laughs> no, no, it, it's really true. Um, so jumping back to the, to the building. So the municipal building, as you said, uh, the schoolhouse torn down in 1927, the building, the municipal building built in 1929, but before Boot Hill took it over, it was, and that was, I think it bought in 2014. Correct. Construction in 2015. Uh, it was disused for many years. Yes. Um, we've seen some distilleries be founded or expand into sites like this, where the building has had a prior life, whether right up to the date or you know had years in between where it wasn't used. Uh, and almost always, in addition to just the renovations that needs to take place, which it, from what you've said today and also in what I've heard in other interviews, was pretty extensive renovations that had to to happen for this right. building. It sounds yeah. like everything had to be touched except basically except the skeleton itself of the building. No pun intended, given that you found bones there. Um, <laughs> <I like it. laughs> didn't, didn't plan that one, but it just happened. Um, yes. So in addition to all of that work that you had to do, did you also run into any uh, issues with it being maybe a, an historic building or something like that, where you had to limit... Mm. Not only let's let's put it this way: Did you run into those issues of it being an historic building, and did that at all affect how the distillery itself was built? Yes, huge, huge factor into the whole thing. I think if you probably asked Hayes uh, now, would you reinvent, would you rehabilitate a historic building to start a distillery? He'd probably say, "Don't ever do it," <laughs> <laughs> uh, because it is 
uh, it creates a whole, it, it, it's a good thing. And I, I do also want to say, you know, start off as saying uh, repurposing and, and rehabilitating old or historic buildings to do something like this, whether it be brewery, distillery, winery, coffee shop, retail, whatever is, especially in rural communities like us where, you know, where historic preservation has not been a priority. Um, it's hugely important to, uh, to the communities. And, you know, if there's anything that I'm most proud of is what we have added, you know, with the value, not only you know, adding value to the grain, but we've what we've added to the community. This was a building that was iconic. It's, you know, if you, in our town, uh, it was on postcards in the 1920s and up to the forties, you know, this was a landmark. Um, it could have been a parking lot. It was about ready to be torn down. Um, it had not been occupied since about the late nine, 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 uh, 99, 2000. Um, it had been used for storage by the city. It was owned by the city uh, still, and it had been used to store, you know, old outdated electronics and paperwork and records. It was used for uh, law enforcement training. Uh, we found paintball splatters from uh, sheriff's department and city police, you know, doing uh, uh, exercises to breach structures, I guess. Uh, it was used for KBI drug sting operations were run, run out of here because it's relatively was relatively private at the time. Uh, it was used for surveillance, apparently, from some houses that were around the area. So, you know. Think about from a we're uh, we're not in we're we are in downtown so this is located in downtown. I did mention that the museum is to the south of us. We're off of the main highway. We're kind of off of the main downtown area. Again, the hill was on the outskirts of town, so the main downtown was forming two three blocks to to my uh, uh, east. Um. So, from a Urban renewal, not urban renewal. That's not what I want to say at all. That's actually the opposite. I want to say from a, a I can get that a, part out. That's okay. <laughs> from a renewal, well, that I can get into urban renewal. That's a whole different deal. Uh, that's where buildings were torn down in the seventies that were historic. So, um, while the historic route is more difficult, I think in the long run it's more beneficial to the community. And again, we took a building that was vacant, unused, unoccupied, that had uh, holes in the roof, that had pigeons everywhere, that had uh, icebergs of uh, in the wintertime from water damage, from water leaking in the roof, from the asphalt that was crumbling around the outside to windows that were boarded up. And now this is a destination. This is a place that people come, you know, we have a tasting room. It's our, it's, we have a front facing front of house tasting room that people can come have craft cocktails, have flights. Uh, we have beautiful patio area on the back patio that overlooks the museum and you kind of see out South Dodge against the highest hill. It's got a great, almost feels like a rooftop bar. Uh, it's got an awesome place to enjoy at the night. So we took a, again, a building that was about ready to be a parking lot and turned it into a destination. If there's anything I'm most proud of of what the family has done, you know, the owners have done and, and being a part of it is that we've added value to this community and it's part of a destination now. Um, 
people come to Dodge City to see Dodge City in the Old West and they go to the museum. They're like, oh, shit, there's a distillery here. Well, we got to go see that. Well, it also happens to be in a historic building that was the old city hall that happened to be located on the original Boot Hill Cemetery. That's even cooler. We got to go there. So um, absolutely, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a harder road to go because, well, I guess we had two options. Um, if we wanted to, up to raising the whole building, uh, we could have done that, but we decided to go the historical route of uh, putting it, going through the process to put it on the Registry of Historic Places. And we are now on the National and Kansas Historic Registry. But we're also, for that reason, we're uh, uh, under the careful guidance of Kansas Historical Society that says you can, you know, the building has to retain its original character. Um, for instance, uh, in the old courtroom, which is just on the other side of the wall over here, um, there's exposed brick. Plaster was torn down and it was turned into office spaces from the Chamber of Commerce in the 80s, 90s. So it had all been, you know, ceilings have been dropped and walls been built. And so we gutted all that, basically took it back down to the, to the bare walls. And there was some exposed brick and, you know, exposed brick is not a bad aesthetic behind me here um but when that room has yet to be finished out other things have taken precedence uh they basically said you have to replaster that wall you can't leave exposed brick because exposed brick would have not been in a courtroom in the 1920s so you have to follow weird rules like that another one another perfect example is um all the windows around you know that were installed like i mentioned a lot of them broken out they were in bad shape uh some of them were salvageable some of them were not we could not go in all the you know the, it, these were the old 1920 style metal frame windows that had individual window panes in it you know we had to go in and replace individual window panes we couldn't replace whole windows unless they was completely not salvageable and there was mm -hmm. that was the case in, in a handful of spots that we could replace with a reasonable facsimile that matched, you know, the original 1920 character of the building. But, you know, for that reason, we had to replace 120 window panes individually all the way around the building to retain the original. Uh, so they're all original. Um, the brickwork had to be matched on the outside. There been, the masonry around the outside of the building had been crumbling uh, from years of like salt damage. And, you know, the brick had to be matched as closely as possible. Um, this was a, this is a Spanish colonial style building. So red terracotta roof, they don't make the tiles for these roofs anymore. You've got to actually almost salvage them from another project of, uh, from another structure that's no longer using that roof. So the entire roof had to be replaced. Subroof, tile roof, they had to lift off each of those individual tiles, save them and preserve them. They could be chucked over the sides. They'd break. You had to hand carry them down and then replace them one by one to retain the original character of the building. So there's a whole host of other complications that come into rehabilitating a historic building if you're going to go the historic route. But the benefits on the back end of that are make it all worth it. You become eligible for grants. You become eligible for uh, tax considerations. So uh, you become eligible for so much more things on the back end of it. But it is the much harder. It took two years. The building was purchased in 2014. You're correct. We didn't open our doors till 2016. These are also farmers. So, you know, he's doing it largely on his own, you know, obviously bringing in the professionals where 
where we needed to. But, you know, a lot of the restoration and build out was, you know, hey, I got a case of beer and a sledgehammer. You want to come knock down some interior walls? It's kind of that deal. So uh, in, in the long run, I think, you know, it's totally worth it. It's uh, for what for what it does to enhance the community and that you've, you know, you've taken something that that was uh, derelict and maybe an eyesore and created a destination. I think it's just a the coolest thing. But, you know, what the value that it adds is is. Uh, is you can't you really can't measure it. So um, I think, again, having said doing it all over again, and, and here's the other part of that. All right. So one other just like to wrap it up is the building is the building. We can't we can't add on to it. The neighborhood we're in, there's not space to expand um, from 2016 to about 20, well, 2020, four years, uh, our barrels were aged in the old firehouse. And so it's this long, narrow building that you used to park fire trucks in. Half of it has our distilling equipment. The other half had barrels. And we were sitting there shoveling, you know, as we were filling barrels, we were running out of room. And it's like, well, where do you go with all this? So it forced us to, in the expansion side of it, it forced us to buy a land offsite and build a second rickhouse to store barrels. And actually, now we've even we're, we've got future expansion plans of going into another space. So, but it's not here. So the building is the building. You, we can't add on to it. We can't. Uh, uh, there, there's just no room to expand. I mean, it's always going to be our base of operations, but there is no room to go anywhere and because it's a historic building there's no other way that it, it is what it is so that again a long-winded answer but that's no that part fascinates me because it 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 forces you to be creative in a lot of ways you know they're i'm thinking of places they couldn't obviously couldn't remove the roof or they couldn't raise the roof any higher they had to keep it where right. it was um so that's how tall you're still can be um, well, and that's that factors into the still that we purchased. Um, the firehouse has only got 11 foot ceilings and, um, you know, you couldn't put a hole. Well, there was a place for uh, where the old fire pole was, that, but it, that leads up to where our offices are. Um, and it just wasn't in the plan. So the still that we purchased and was built for us was built for that room and the columns were side by side. And actually that ended up creating another problem because that second column never worked properly. Mm-hmm. So uh yeah not it was not a warehouse space where you've got you know unlimited amount of of height we had to work with what we had and so the equipment reflected that as well or still reflect that and it still does um there is a feature as part of this 1920s you know fire, uh, municipal building that held a fire department there's a feature on this building called a hose tower and it's where they used to hang fire hoses to dry when hoses were made from natural materials, you know, when they'd come off, come back from putting a fire out, firemen come up from putting a fire out, the hoses had to be dried out. Well, the hose tower's function was they'd haul these wet hoses up, hang them up from these hooks and bring the dry hoses down and load them up on the fire truck. Well, so this building has a feature called a hose tower. It's almost three stories high. It's long and narrow. <laughs> right. Well, I have my vodka still in that hose tower because it's got height. We have a it was an 18 plate. Now it's a 36 plate column still set up that shoots up into the height of that hose tower. It looks like a closet as you're, as you're staring at it directly, but you look up, it's got all kinds of height. 
Well, that's what we had. Yeah. So again, the building's a building. You got to work with what you got within the confines of this being a historic structure. And our whole setup, if you will, has to reflect that. So you're absolutely right. So just looking to, uh, you know, our last uh, 10 minutes or so, I, I have two big questions for you. The f- yeah. And the first one is, so in addition to the products that I've gotten to taste, you also, like I said, you have a vodka, a gin, yes. um, the red eye whiskey, white whiskey. Uh, yes. But you also mentioned, you know, you've had days where you did rye because you're now growing rye on the farms. Um, still not barley, which totally understand. Uh, but you have rye, you have maybe some other things too. What are uh, some of these, let's say, other products that you have kind of percolating down the line? Coming down the line? Some cool stuff. First off, yeah, rye, I think, is going to be huge. And it's 100% rye. We did not... We did not, you know, it's kind of like the wheat whiskey. Let's just go all in. Um, so it's 100% rye. Um, I don't have a timeline on it at this point. Um, I think it still needs to sit a little longer. Uh, it is completely unique from other ryes that I've had. And I think it's just beautiful. Uh, with some of the flavors that were coming out of the, even the new make. Um, another interesting one that's probably coming down the line, Triticale. Uh, Triticale is a, you know, is a cousin to wheat, if you will. Uh, and there has been a certain, we've a certain amount planted, grown, harvested, brought here and distilled. And I, I'm not sure if it's been filled into barrels yet or not, but, uh, so, you know, we kind of have an opportunity to play with, um, interesting grains that's not used, you know, not common. Um, so that's probably coming down the line. Um, you know, otherwise it's a lot of hurry up and wait. You know, bourbon is getting older. Uh, you know, we're obviously still making bourbon, 51, 49 bourbon every day. As I think we've learned that you really just can't have too much whiskey because you're planning for so far ahead in the future. So, you know, that's getting made every day and and being filled into barrels and, and goes away. And, and we don't see it for years. Uh, same with wheat whiskey. We're still making that. Uh, you know, I think, I think one thing it's important to, and maybe one thing I'm you know, learning ourselves is that it's important to just stay focused, uh, to, you know, do what you do and do it really well. And I think, you know, having experiments and doing fun things is cool. And we have to do things like that. Sometimes it's necessity, you know, you've got to cash flow, you've got to do stuff to make money. Uh, but, you know, for your core products, do what you do, do what you do it well, do it, do what you do and do it well and keep maintaining that quality and then keep trying to improve every day on the efficiencies and how to, uh, you know, how to, how to, what, what is it? Uh, squeeze, uh, squeeze quarters out of nickels <laughs> and, and make the, make the best possible product with what you've got. So, you know, that's always going to be a mainstay. Um, but we've done we've we've done quite a few things that we never thought we were going to get into um, that are out on the market. Uh, college partnerships has been huge with our Kansas college colleges. Uh, we've done co-branded products with them. That's been really cool. Uh, we got into canned cocktails here recently. Um, never thought we were going to do that, but RTDs are huge right now. So um, you know, post post pandemic or wherever we're at, we just expanded our. Uh, operations to allow for that. That's been a huge thing. So, and a cool part of the business. Um, 
again, do focusing in on what we're on what we're, we know we can already do and what we're already good at, keep that going. And, but also, you know, again, I think the rye is going to be a huge, it's going to be exciting when it comes out and have a mainstay to, uh, to say, you know, Hey, this was not, this is not MGP. This did not come out of Indiana. This did not come out of any other place else. This came from Southwest Kansas and we just, just stayed focused. And, and when it's ready, it's ready. And I think that's going to be an exciting day when that comes out. Yeah. I certainly look forward to trying that. I'm loving the rye growth right now. And I especially love trying rye from different styles and different places. And clearly I have not had one from Kansas yet. So yeah, that'll be, that'll be on my list once it comes out. And then, um, you know, my last question is just for, from a marketing standpoint and from production, uh, you're traversing the state, uh, all over to, to with product. Are you, do you feel like you're more looking to own your backyard first, or you're looking to get into more States first? Um, it, it's a constant battle, truthfully. Uh, but we got to own our backyard. We've got a, we've got a, you know, Kansas is not a big state. 2 million, 3 million, 2.9, something like that. There's more people that live in Kansas city, Missouri. There's more people live in Dallas than they do in the whole state of Kansas. <laughs> so, you know, while it does seem to be, you know, uh, cool to go into, you know, bigger, bigger and better markets, if you will, we got to win our home state over first. And, and that's just a, it's a long process. Um, there's a lot of competition out there and it takes, you know, somebody on the ground. And that's what I do is on all I can do is promote. I mean, we're, we work within the three tier system. We have a distributor in Kansas and, you know, they're the ones that are, there's those distributor reps are the ones that are pushing the buttons on their iPads to physically place the order. All I can do is go in and introduce myself and just be a person and add as much value as I can. And that's, that's, especially being out here and, you know, again, two and a half hours away from the, from the nearest major Metro five hours away from Kansas city. You know, I can't be everywhere every day. I can't, you know, it's not like I have 25 accounts that I just go call on every day. I call on, you know, every bit. So when I go and make a trip, you know, it involves gas, hotels, you know, expenses. And, um, it's tough, but I think in the long run, it is more worth staying closer to home. Now we are in other States and I kind of our neighboring States. So, you know, Kansas is our main market will always be our main market. It is cool to go out to other States and see those POs go out across the country. Uh, and, you know, putting a big order together and a truck shows up and it goes out to God knows where, uh, but we're distributed in other States. I'm available in Tennessee, a uh, small distributor reached out to us. And so we're in, you know, he didn't order a lot, but I've not been to Tennessee. Is it worth our time to go spend time in Tennessee? Not really. Um, unless I hire a person and have them do it, but you got to let the distributor do it. So the further you get away from your main market, the harder it is. And I think also, you know, the, that's kind of where the layers of our story, I think, kind of come into play. The further away you get from Kansas, really the, the, the less knowledge there is of Dodge City and affinity for it. And, you know, again, Gunsmoke Generation, that's one thing, but they're also not, it's becoming less and less. Um, so the affinity for the old West, the wild West, if you will, uh, 
may or may not resonate. So then we fall back on the sustainability, the soil to sip aspect. This is our grain. This is our process. We're not buying anything from anybody else. I'm not saying that that's a, you know, buying and bottling is not a bad thing. There's plenty of great whiskey that's great brands that have been built that way. Nothing wrong with that. But when you are the farmers, you've got a distinct level of control. And I think that that resonates with the consumer. Oh, these guys are growing it. Like you say, it's right there on the label. Grown, milled, mashed, fermented, distilled, and bottled by Boot Hill Distillery. You read that and go, okay, these guys are actually doing it. I think that's what needs more. But that story is harder to tell the further you go out. So, you know, I'm in Oklahoma. I'm in Missouri now. I'm in Kansas. And those are neighboring states and the ones that we can support the best. You know, the the way to build a brand and get get people to try it is you got to show up and you got to pour samples and we pour a lot of samples. We do a lot of events um, all over the state, uh, both in you know fundraisers, charity fundraisers, uh, community events, uh, whiskey dinners, you know, put on by the distributor in a, in a certain maybe on-premise account. You know, those are the ways that you try to build a brand. And it's, it's tough I and mean, it's just day to day. You know, there's so many other brands that are out there trying to do the same thing and you just got to, it's got to maintain it. And which I, again, focusing on the home state is where you really, I think is hugely important. You know, again, going out further, cool. We're going to do it, but people at home got to know who you are and got to get behind you. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a perfect way to end it. And uh, I, while I do hope to see you in more States, uh, I completely agree own the backyard first. That's some of the most successful smaller distilleries. And especially when you've got fewer distilleries in a state as well, and you've got that opening, it's some of the the best success that people have had. So with that, Lee, thank you so much for coming on. Talk about Boot Hill Distillery, history of Dodge City, of your location, Absolutely. what a a boot hill is and uh (laughs) what is that fine and finding skeletons and bones where you didn't think including a llama bone where you didn't think you were going to find a llama bone uh there's going to be a story one day on that because i I don't know who who has llamas in kansas but we'll find out someday uh but in the meantime uh in the show notes of this episode we'll have links to all of the social media to the website for boot hill where you can uh see where you can buy it as well and in the meantime lee thanks so much for having for coming on david thank you so much enjoy the chat uh appreciate all the time and uh uh thanks so much awesome hey folks thanks for listening to another episode of the whiskey ring podcast if you like what you hear please go ahead and click that subscribe follow or like button leave a rating review on your podcast app of choice and let me know what you want to hear you can reach out to me through the podcast apps or email me at david at whiskeymywedderring.com with any suggestions or ideas for new show guests. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash whiskeyinmywedderring. That's whiskey with an E for as little as a dollar a month. $5 a month gets you access to bonus content, including our soon to resume under the influencer series. And $25 a month means you join the barrel share club. Each month barrel share club members get to try products sent to me for review bottles from my own collection, and sometimes bottles I just pick up because they're fun or interesting. Right now, only five spots remain in the Barrel Share Club, so grab your place today. Finally, please follow on Instagram. You can follow me at WhiskeyMyWeddingRing or at WhiskeyRingPodcast. You can follow me on Twitter at WhiskeyRing. 
You can follow on Facebook at Whiskey My Wedding Ring or join the Facebook group, the Whiskey Ringers group. And I hope to see you there. Cheers. Thank you for the support and see you next time.